Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Great episode for you today, talking about mining here in Canada. New book entitled Mining Country, A History of Canada's Mines and Miners. And I know what you're thinking. I, I can I can hear you yelling at your phones. But no, this is not a traditional book about mining. It's not the very celebratory, romantic vision of mining and, and miners in the past. This is a very new approach or a different approach to mining by John Sanlos and Arne Keeling, who are professors out at Memorial in St. John's. And they have taken a, a different approach to mining. There's a lot of case study work here to put mining and miners within a larger national narrative. They have five key themes that they've identified in the book, which include relationships with indigenous communities, the experience of the workers, the, the locations of the mines, and certainly the environmental impact, uh, both in the moment and post mining. And, and these themes emerge in the book to get away from that very romantic vision of mining to acknowledge the damage that mining has done both at an individual human level as well as at environmental level as, as well as looking at it from the colonial project but at the same time it doesn't diminish the work of those who are involved in the mining industry those individuals who put their lives on the line every day going down into mines in very dangerous conditions some have argued that they've been exploited by mining companies. So it, it does take, to me, a very even-handed, a very nuanced approach to mining and the industry's place within Canada. There's there's some great material about the relationship between mines and urban Canadians that tends to not get really addressed in a lot of the other literature. Just overall, I, I was so pleasantly surprised when I started going through this book that uh, it, it wasn't what I anticipated it, and I very much enjoyed it. So it certainly would encourage you all to check it out. Mining's dangerous. You know, if, one example from the work that I've done, the Moose River mine disaster. It was uh, a, it's a mine in Moose River out in the East Coast, and it collapsed, and it became this global story. The CRBC, the predecessor to the CBC, was able to have live updates from the mine once an hour for three days, I believe it was. And it became this global phenomenon of people checking in on what was going on with the mines. Would they survive? And there's this great audio that you can listen to on the CBC archives of the moment where the miners were rescued and sort of this triumph of the moment that you hear. And it, it's that phenomenon where the small local mine in Eastern Canada becomes a large global story that to me speaks to this romantic vision almost that we have of the danger of mining of the men going down coming up all dusty and dirty and we have that imagery but what this book does in my mind it puts that into a proper historical context a proper historical framework that isn't heavy-handed either side that doesn't dismiss the industry entirely it doesn't promote it though either it, there's this it's just really well done is my view of this book uh, and again like i said something that i was not really anticipating when i opened it so i was very excited then to have the opportunity to talk to one of the authors john sandlos he joined me from st john's earlier today 
Uh, we do want to take a note. We mentioned it at the start of the episode. The weather out in Newfoundland did wash out uh, a main artery there on the island. So we are sending our best wishes to everyone out in Newfoundland affected there. And of course, sending our best wishes to everyone out in BC as well. All those who have been affected by the flooding and certainly heartened to see the the coming together of the communities out there. But uh, sending all of our best wishes to everyone literally here, coast to coast to coast, who is uh, currently being affected by some severe weather across the country. So with that, let's get right to my chat with John Sanlos. Let's get into the book again, as I said in the intro, Mining Country, A History of Canada's Mines and Miners. And John, that's you and your colleague Arne Keeling from Memorial. So I want to talk about the the genesis of the book to to start, because as I said in the intro, this is a book that it kind of goes against the traditional mining book that talks all about how brave the people were. The the panning for gold is a lot of it. There's there's a romance to a lot of the writing about the mining industry. So how do you and Arn approach the mining industry? How do you approach just the field in general, given that you guys seem to have a very different perspective from a lot of the work that is already out there? Well, I came to mining history actually through fairly unique means. Years ago in the late 90s, I was an adult educator in a small indigenous community called Fort Resolution on the south shores of Great Slave Lake. And one of my students wrote a short essay assignment about the history of a mine, the the Pine Point Lead Zinc Mine, which was located about 60 kilometers from the community. And then I actually took him out there to show me around. And what he had explained to me was that this mine, you know, dug ton after ton of lead zinc ore out of the ground. The community got very little benefit from it. They maybe got some jobs later on in the operation of the mine. And what got left behind was, in his view, an environmental mess. And indeed, there were open pits uh, left behind, a, a, a gravel spread over a tailings pond and, and so on. And I, I wrote a magazine article with my spouse, Yolanda, about that case. And then I kind of put it away for years and years. I did my PhD and I got into wildlife and, and national parks history. But when I came to Memorial in 2006, um, I knew that Arne Keeling was here and he was a historical geographer. We worked in very similar fields and we sat down for a beer and he had been working on Uranium City, the history of another community that had been mostly abandoned in northern Saskatchewan. And we thought, why don't we pursue a research program in mining history? And what we quickly found was a few things. We, we found that Abandoned mines were an issue of tremendous concern for Indigenous communities in northern Canada, but also non-Indigenous communities as well, that there was a legacy of toxins being left behind, infrastructure that had been left in place, not cleaned up, and so on. And so we wanted to look at the industry in a way that would celebrate some of the labor and the ingenuity and the technology that went into developing those mines, but that would acknowledge some of the costs of developing the mines, both environmental costs and and human costs as well, ultimately. So how do you go, though, from those smaller cases? So Fort Resolution, you're looking there. Arn's looking at Uranium City in Saskatchewan. How do you take those cases of individual mines how do you broaden it out to a national story? Because you know, mining is very localized from my understanding of is that each mine 
has very specific circumstances, certainly geographical, environmental circumstances, and then the labor situation is going to vary depending on where the mine is, uh, the communities that surround it. So how do you broaden that out to try to put it to within a larger national framework so that we can kind of assess it on a, a more macro scale as opposed to the typical micro histories that we, t- that I at least, tend to associate with mines? I guess the, the easy answer is to say we went very slowly. We took our time. We did several projects that were funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, and we were able to develop a, a pretty good collection of case study uh, case studies and, and research on specific places, as you say, all of them unique. Um, we did this by doing a lot of the research ourselves, places like Pine Point, Giant Mine, and Yellowknife. But we also had uh, a veritable army of really amazing graduate students who took on case studies themselves. Port Radium on Great Bear Lake, Shefferville, uh, Rankin Inlet uh, on Hudson Bay. So we developed a really good knowledge of northern mining. To develop the the southern mining uh, material, we really delved into work that other people had done for the most part. Um, There is a lot of mining history that's been done in Canada but nobody had really brought it together into a coherent narrative. So a lot of case study research on on coal mining and and, uh, gold mining and so on, but not brought together into a single narrative. And it was actually the genesis of the book. Uh, It really was the brainchild of James Lorimer, the founder of of the publisher of the book. And he approached us and he was aware of of the work we'd done in Northern Canada. And he said, why don't you expand this out and make it into a a complete history of mining in Canada? And though while Notebook could tell the complete story of mining in Canada, we at least uh, feel very positive about about the fact we've produced a comprehensive narrative of of many mining stories. Going back really thousands of years to the the first miners, which were indigenous people who engaged in copper mining in this country. That's kind of an interesting element to it, right? The sort of that, that it looks that far back in how do we necessarily even define mining then? Because, uh, you know, you have the image of mining of contemporary, at least, you know, the big machinery associated with it, uh, certainly dangerous. But then you also have that romantic image of the guy standing in the river in the Klondike with a pan searching for gold. And then you have the, the thousands of years, as you mentioned, of, of indigenous experience using the resources of the land. So, so what is the actual definition of mining? How do you understand it? And then, and therefore, how do you try to place the uh, use of resources within that framework? Mining really is almost any effort that humans put into digging up uh, a valuable mineral from the ground. As you say, that there can be very um, non-intrusive ways of doing that. So indigenous mining in the copper fields really consisted of looking for what we call native copper. And that refers to copper that is often visible from the surface, or at least signs of it are visible. And indigenous people dug trenches, holes, sometimes tunnels, to access that copper. They were very good at identifying where it was uh, and exploiting it where it existed. But these mines are, as you say, nothing compared to large scale industrial mines that that we see today. So mining happens on a lot of different scales. I think one of the things that we tried to point out in the book is that there is this incredibly long history, centuries long history of smaller scale mining, uh, mining in rivers, mining with smaller scale operations in in Canada that dates back 
for a very long time, but the advent of industrial mining or machine intensive mining involving tools like dynamite and ore trains that would take large amounts of ore from the underground or huge shovels that would essentially strip mine or create open pit mines. That's only a very recent phenomenon, at least if you think broadly, maybe the last century and a half. And I think one of the most interesting things for me in this book was seeing how much uh, the production of valuable ore and minerals increased starting in the late 19th century in Canada. So we have in the 1890s, you start to see tenfold, 20-fold increases in the production of silver, copper, gold, coal, and so on. And then after World War II, it, it's often 10, 20, 30, 40 uh, times the increase of uh, uh, minerals that are being produced in, uh, in that period. And so we are using materials taken from the earth on a scale that is historically unprecedented. We're also using energy, if you think of coal energy or if you think of bitumen mining as, as being part of the sort of mining industrial complex, um, we're using this stuff in ways and at a scale that we've never experienced before. And I think we're only starting to realize the consequences of that. And one of the things that we point out in, at the end of the book is that ore grades everywhere in the world are declining. Sometimes ore grades will improve if there's a particularly rich find, but for the most part, the quality of the ore, and that is the percentage of valuable material in that ore, is going down. And what does that mean? It means it takes more energy to produce uh, valuable minerals. It, takes, it, it produces more waste rock, more tailings, and ultimately to try to get a good quality ore, the mining industry often talks about pushing into new frontiers. So we hear a lot about the potential of mining on the ocean floor, or even in some of the more fanciful visions of the future, we hear about mining asteroids or mining on the moon. So I think after a, a sort of a century and a half of, of very machine intensive, large scale mining, the industry itself is having to confront some of the problems around ore quality that have um, that are inherent to to exploiting a non-renewable resource. It's interesting though that you bring bring those up because that that case of of it becoming harder to get materials out of the ground, looking to the ocean. There was a story recently uh, that I saw on the CBC about uh, somewhere in Alberta in the mountains. Uh, the, a new place where the provincial government wants to open that up for mining and the local community does not want this project to move forward. So it's becoming a point of contention increasingly, it seems, at various places, not only around around the country, but ar around the world. So it seems that at this point, as we sit here in 2021, that there's this school of thought that that future exploration or the continuing to rely on certain mining projects is a bad thing and that there, there's a, a lot of people who are almost anti-mining, while at the same time you have a lot of people who are pro-mining for a variety of reasons, for the economic benefits to community potentially, just the history. Uh, there's you know families, certainly in places like West Virginia, where you read a lot about families of miners, and that that's what they've done for generations, and people who have that romantic vision of mining. So how do you two fit into that? Like, How do you navigate this? It's one thing for me as someone who studies communications and broadcasting to write about 1930s CBC, right? That, that's a relatively easy space to, to navigate politically. But, but you, to, you and Arne 
are working in this space that has a lot of contemporary discussion, a lot of contemporary debate with very passionate folks on both sides. So, so how do you manage to navigate that and ensure that it doesn't find its way in influencing the contents of the book? You know, you're describing 21st century polarization, right? And right, yeah. maybe things aren't as polarized as, as people make it out to be. I do think there can be hard positions on, on one side or the other. We tried to navigate somewhat in the middle of that in, in the book. The first thing that we wanted to do with the book is we wanted to respect the, the labor that mine workers have put into mines, shaping landscapes and you know, certainly contributing. We acknowledge in the book that making an immense contribution to the material prosperity of Canada, uh, immense contributions to the war effort in World War II and, and, and so on. So it's not, it's not a contribution to be taken lightly. And it's certainly not the case that we could shut down the mines tomorrow and continue to have our society function as, as it does today. That would have to be some sort of gradual wind down and it would have to be a move to some sort of more recycling intensive economy and, and, and so on. And the mining industry, it is, it's fair to say, does look for ways to do things in a more sustainable manner, whether that goes far enough or not, is, I think is, is an open question. But we wanted to respect the labor that people have put in. Uh, and, and history shows that mining communities often take a great deal of pride in the work that they have done on the land. They often, like in, in Yellowknife uh, a few years ago, they blew up the head frame to the con mine, which was the one of the first gold mines, was certainly the first very big gold mine in the area. And that that head frame had been a landmark for the community. And when they, they kind of blew the bottom out and toppled it over, I think there was a real sense of loss uh, of people's identification of where their, their fathers had worked and where maybe they had worked themselves. So in no way did we wish to undermine that. But at the same time, I think our book also shows that mine workers often had to struggle against uh, mine managers and mine owners. They had to struggle for rights within in their workplace, the right to organize, the right to form unions, the right to a safe workplace, and particularly issues around dust or mining accidents. Mining Mines are among the most dangerous workplaces in the history of Canada. And we chronicle a lot of uh, extremely tragic accidents. Um, at times, the casualty rates in mining didn't quite rival those of, uh, of combat, but if you add it up over, the, over time, thousands of workers were killed in Canadian mines and probably 10 times as many, if not 20 times as many were injured in the mines. So that we wanted to acknowledge that though workers were very invested in the mines that they helped develop, that mines were a challenging place for them to work. And they often had to organize and, and fight for uh, better working conditions. I think the other element of the book is, is that we wanted to acknowledge that, I think this is the first history of mining to really acknowledge the position of indigenous communities in relation to mines. And if you think about it, right from the very beginning, as the mining enterprise started to expand, when Cortez goes to Mexico, when there's colonial expansion into Africa and so on, sort of at the vanguard of those colonial initiatives is often mining. And it's often gold, which is strongly associated with mining. In the Western United States, that's the case as well. And we had our rushes here in Canada. Sudden influxes of people, uh, new foods, new machinery, new infrastructure that could have a dramatic negative consequences from Indigenous people. For Indigenous people, it could be everything for, from 
appropriating their local landscape for, for mining in ways that undermine their hunting and trapping economies. It could be toxic legacies that were left behind. And, and in Yellowknife, a case we've written about a lot, there were people sickened and at least one child died in the 1950s due to arsenic poisoning. So Indigenous people have, have sort of suffered the brunt of mining in a lot of ways. And a lot of Indigenous communities in Canada really think of mining as being central to their colonial experience. And we've had a lot of discussions about very necessary, very important discussions about residential schools, but it would be my position that I think the reconciliation conversation could look more closely at the impact of development on Indigenous communities, even as we acknowledge that Indigenous people did mine themselves, as we talked about earlier, and have engaged with the industry in contemporary times and recent times in meaningful ways through ownership stake arrangements or through labor agreements and so on. But at the same time, I mean, I do think it has been one of the uh, the vehicles through which Indigenous people have been dispossessed from their land. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and it, it's interesting. It seems like not to be all too staples thesis here, but a lot of this country's economic history from a, the colonial framework is about resource extraction. And there's, I think, more or been more discussion about reconciliation within forestry or fisheries than there has been within mining or, or even things like damming, for instance, right? There's a lot of discussion there. And certainly in the East Coast, uh, I'm sure it's a, a bigger story potentially where you are than, than where I sit here in Ottawa, the fisheries disputes uh, out on the East Coast. So with, with respect to Indigenous uh, treaty rights for the fisheries. So there there is a lot of discussion around resource extraction, but I think you're right that mining doesn't get that much attention. And it brings us to one of the five themes. So you guys identify five principal themes in the book. And one of them is mining's relationship with indigenous communities across the country. And how much of the relationship of mining to indigenous communities is based not only on the larger colonial project of Canada, but just the geographic realities of where a lot of mines are, where it's more isolated communities. The, the book talks about how Large urban communities in Toronto and Vancouver became the financial centers for mining, but there still creates a disconnect between the actual on-site mine and the communities around it. So how much does the isolated part of mines and the communities around mines maybe influence the way that, or perhaps inhibit the way towards reconciliation for mining and indigenous communities? Yeah, I, th I think... Prior to the 1970s, beginning in the 1970s, there wasn't there was some initial attempts for industry and government to engage with indigenous communities around issues of financial benefits, employment, and training. And you know, we could go into how imperfect some of those agreements were, and how you know whether indigenous communities had real power at the negotiating table. There's always an inequity when you have small communities of five to 700 people facing off against big companies and their lawyers and, and government and their lawyers. But at least at that point, there was an attempt to engage with those communities. Prior to that, when mines would come into remote areas in Canada, it was as if the indigenous communities didn't even exist. And if you want to take a scholarly view of it, I think geographers would say that, that prospectors, uh, exploration people, 
uh, government officials who were pro promoting northern development, they would look at the landscape and see a terra nullius, an empty land. And, and if they did at least acknowledge that there was an indigenous community that, that was there, I think in their heads, they were probably like, well, those are simple people who engage in fishing and hunting. What we do isn't going to bother them and they're not going to bother us. And, and so why, you know, why should we even talk to them? And, and, and really, I think there was the idea that mining was a, a higher use of the land, that hunting, trapping, fishing, that was somehow thought of as primitive. And it's very clear, at least in the eyes of government, that mining projects were seen as being a way of modernizing these remote uh, so-called hinterland areas. And, and as you stated before, Canada has a lot of territory that's like this. I mean, the Canadian Shield is an incredibly mineral-rich geological formation. Um, it's where a lot of Canada's biggest producing mines have been located. And so though I don't know that mining companies go in and, and say, well, we want to we want to go out there and displace indigenous people. I don't think that they're engaging in the, this kind of they're not really thinking of their um, their expansionism in that way. But I do think with government, they often promote it as, as modernization, as expanding the Canadian frontier, as, inter, as, as bringing what is a useless territory, what might be thought of as the wilderness or, or the bush, which is another way of you know, ignoring the people that are already there, um, that would bring a useless parcel of land into some kind of useful production in areas where you're never going to have extensive agriculture. And, and I think that's the key is, is, is Canada, like, like a settler colony like Australia, has a lot of territory where you just can't grow things. And so what are you going to do with that territory? Well, you might log some of it, but if you go far enough north, the trees get too small to be economically viable. So what have you got left? Mining and a little bit of oil and gas. And so the, the industry is critical to those hinterland areas, both as an economic driver in the contemporary world, but also it's critical to understanding the history of the colonial encounter in those regions, without a doubt. Because the mining and the, the sort of stationary industry that goes along with it is counter to traditional land use. I mean, the, the people who were there before Europeans arrived used the land, but used it seasonally and, and moved around. And, you know, when you look at some of the, the areas in the Canadian Shield, I was involved in one project in what is now the, the borderlands between sort of Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and the, the northern part of the U.S., uh, sort of in the Minnesota uh, area there. The people who were there used the land. They just did it in a way that didn't fit within the colonial perceptions of how you are supposed to, quote unquote, use territory. And therefore, mining can be seen as a step forward through a colonial lens. And you're right that they're, they're probably not saying we have to displace these people, but all the coded language is is evidence of it being part of the colonial project, right? Yes. And I think it's important to realize on the other hand, the other side of that is that indigenous people have always found creative ways to engage in economic opportunities um, when mines come into their territories, whether it's through woodcutting. Well, in the earliest days in Great Bear Lake, um, the provision of caribou meat was uh, something that uh, went on at Cameron Bay, trying to find labor in the mines and get training to work in the mines at Rankin Inlet. There was a, in the 1950s, a nickel mine on the Hudson Bay coast in, in what is now 
Nunavut, there were uh, there was a kind of almost conscious experiment on the part of government and the mine owners to engage Inuit as as workers within the mines, and it was sort of touted as being you know from the Stone Age to the Mineral Age kind of thing. And and I think it's safe to say those were uh, among indigenous people in the world. They were some of the most rapidly modernized people in the, in the history of all humanity. But at the same time, they adjusted fairly well to their new lives as miners. The problem was the mine only lasted for five years and then they mm. experienced a new kind of displacement, um, which was being out of out of a job. But so I think it's important to realize that indigenous communities haven't always opposed mining per se. If there was a consensus view, which of course, it's really hard to draw a consensus view out of diverse communities and diverse cultures. It's that, you know, indigenous communities are often not opposed to development as a rule, but they don't want that development to destroy their local environment and they want to get right. some economic benefit out of it. And so that sort of speaks to a couple of the other themes here. You have places of minds as a theme, the environment, so the environmental impact associated with it, and even the environment and the post mining environment and you talk a lot about abandoned mines in the in the book so how much does geography really play a role when you're talking about mining because you know you know it, is it like a chicken and egg thing of people explored for mining sites in locations that were outside the typical colonial uh, developments as opposed to the, sort of the other way around of like there wasn't anything and therefore that's where the the large urban settings now are like you know how, how much does just the actual reality of where minerals are shape the growth of the industry in the 19th and 20th century and the offshoot of how does that affect sort of where the financial centers are that help to facilitate the mining projects that is a big question. You're almost asking me to do an entire introductory Canadian <laughs> geography course, but I, I think it's it's true. I mean, Canada's big cities are often located near waterways um, for strategic purposes. But just to give you an example of the the sort of connection between urban development and the hinterland development is is um, we could take the case of the Labrador iron mines, which started to be developed in the 1950s, and they are among the more long lasting mines in Canada, they're still going strong. And uh, one of the reasons that the St. Lawrence Seaway was developed, and one of the reasons that Hamilton uh, is located where it is, is, I mean, the steel mills have a longer history than, you know, than, than the Labrador mines. But at the same time, those mines came along and, and presented a very strategic opportunity. And I think what a lot of geographers have argued is, you know, why didn't they, why didn't they develop steel mills like in Settile or somewhere closer in Quebec? Well, they didn't want to do that because there already were, there was an integrated steel industry located on the Great Lakes. So what do you do? You have to create a seaway to get this product uh, down to the centers of production. So in many ways, mining development is driven by the demands of urban centers. So we can think of copper refineries in Montreal. We can think of, you know, the entire steel producing complex in on the Great Lakes. We can think of nickel refineries in Col Port Colburn. And, and then also not always lo located in big urban areas, but the big smelters like the famous trail smelter or the horn smelter, often located at some distance from the mines 
basically, the, if, if you're asking about the geographical pattern of production, you ha often have far-flung mines that are feeding very distant smelters, but it's most economically um, advantageous to develop one production facility that serves many, many different mines. That's the economics right. of this. You're not going to build a smelter at every mine. So to take the trail, the smelter in Trail BC, that smelter drew lead zinc in from the Pine Point mine on Great Slave Lake, from the Sullivan mine in British Columbia, and then the Nana Civic mine all the way up on, on Baffin Island. And, and so ore gets moved great distances, usually concentrated ore to make it a little bit cheaper to ship. It, it gets moved great distances. And the economy of, of this is that often... Southern capital from the cities goes out to the hinterland, but then often the the kind of value added production is done back closer to those cities again. So it, it is very much mining is very much, a, you know, it, it bespeaks of the urban rural nexus and, and how rural development flows from urban capital and the, the needs of urban areas. And, it, and even on a basic level, I mean, the entire copper mining complex the, the, the explosion of copper mining, which wasn't as big in Canada as in the United States, but in the 19th century, that's all due to the electrification of cities, right? Right. And, and then, you know, steel obviously goes and services, it services military production, the production of cars, nickel goes into that as, as well. So mining is not just rural, it's, it's urban as well. Yeah, and it's one of those things I don't think we tend to think about. Uh, and certainly I've, I live in a city here in Ottawa that, yeah, you don't really think about it. It's kind of like food, right? You don't necessarily, yeah. when you live in a city, always think about where your food comes from either. It just sort of shows up and you're not always conscious of, of the work that goes into that. And I think mining uh, is a case there too. And when you're talking about the de urban development versus the, the rural development too, I'm, I'm sort of struck thinking about Africa and how European countries went in, took all the stuff out uh, and all the money tended to flow into Europe despite all the materials coming out of out of Africa and you see that replicated occasionally here uh, across the country and and it strikes me too that as you're as you're talking when you have that centralized production facility like the case in trail and, and I'll just have this little I have a little anecdote about trail which I I very much like CD Howe was in Washington in the 1930s and he was talking to some official from Washington state and uh, the guy in Washington State said, you know, the, the smelter at Trail, it, it brings all these noxious fumes. <laughs> it just mm -hmm. carries into the United States and it's awful. And C.D. Howe said, we should come up to Ottawa and see all the noxious fumes coming in to <laughs> Ottawa. And the guy says, what are you talking about? He says, well, I turn on my radio. All I get is American stations. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, so it's, it's just, you know, it, I, I don't know. I, it's one of those little things that you come across. But, well, and Trail was one of the first great cross-border pollution disputes between Canada and the United <laughs> States and, you know, resolved through an international tribunal and, and such. And a whole book has been written about that by the historian yeah. John Worth. So, yeah. yeah, it's a it is a fascinating tale the 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 story of the the trail smelter for sure. But it, it does lead to the question of you know do the local communities benefit to the same extent? Is there a question of equity when you're talking about the mining industry of of who does actually benefit the most? Because you talked earlier about the workers themselves, and there's a I think a lot of people would argue that that miners have been exploited historically. You talked about the incidents, uh, uh, people being injured, and I don't know if that necessarily even takes into account the people who would get sick later on. Certainly, you know, asbestos being maybe the the most notable 
uh, example of this uh, in Canadian history of, of the long-term impacts on miners. So is there an equity issue of who benefits economically when you're looking at the local miners, the people around the community, environmental damage locally versus those in, in the large production centers who don't have to deal with as much of the environmental and immediate impacts? It's probably like any industry, right? And, and, and workers, you know, clearly they don't benefit as much as, as people who are investing in the industry. Many people have gotten extremely rich off of, you know, investing in startup mines. It's a high risk. People have lost all kinds of money too, but it's a, it's a high risk opportunity to invest in mines that are starting up, but you can get very wealthy from it. And of course, you know, when we start to get into the, a bigger corporate structure around the industry and CEOs and managers and and, and whatnot are going to be making a lot more money than workers. And historically, prior to the 1940s, miners, it was an industry where there wasn't always the best pay and you, you couldn't you couldn't necessarily um, negotiate for better pay because mining companies weren't obligated to negotiate uh, with unions until we had a modern framework for labor relations in this country. And it was also a high risk occupation, as you say, and I mentioned accidents previously, and I've actually started doing a little bit more work on mining accidents since we wrote the book, but there's a lot of detail about that in the book as well. People could die for almost any reason in a mine. You could be, you could fall down a shaft. You could be crushed by an ore car as it passed between you and the wall. If you were in the wrong place and long, uh, at the wrong time, so many dynamite injuries, right? Because basically how the process works in an underground mine is you drill holes into the the, the face of the tunnel you're working on, you put dynamite into those holes, you clear the tunnel, you blow the tunnel, you come in and muck the rock out, and then you drill in again. But what if one of those dynamite sticks didn't go off? And sometimes, you know, sometimes workers would drill into a previous hole and there'd still be live dynamite in there and it would go off. And coal mining is so much more dangerous than all the other types of mining uh, really combined because you've got gases in coal mines, methane that could ignite. And miners in the early days, you know, wore uh, lamps on their helmets that have live flame on it. People, somebody might light a cigarette at the wrong time or a spark from the drill might prompt an explosion or a fire. And then that could lead to all kinds of exchanges of gases. It, sometimes oxygen gets sucked out of the mine and people can be asphyxiated and so on. So there's, it's a dangerous type of work. And I think though there are local miner uh, memorials in this country, I think more could be done to commemorate the sacrifice of, of miners, almost like soldiers, right? We could do more. We could have a remembrance day for miners and um, because so many of them have sacrificed so much uh, to support our modern lifestyle. At the same time, I think that, you know, there was the danger there was the possibility of getting an industrial disease, whether that was silicosis due to dust exposure, like silica dust causes a really terrible, slow developing lung disease. Exposure to radon or uh, coal dust could also produce lung cancers or lung, lung diseases. Um, so it's a very, very risky business. But at the same time, I think when you look at oral histories of mining communities, there was an incredible esprit de corps among mining communities, they developed a strong sense of, of local identity, local community. It was sort of like, you know, imagine going out and living in a brand new community with maybe four or 500 other families 
and trying to make a life there for yourselves. And, and I think one of the best examples of that is uh, the community of Pine Point, uh, which did have to be abandoned suddenly when the, the mine closed down. But we've done oral history study, an oral history study of that mine. And everybody that worked there, almost everybody says it was the best place to live. They had the best of the best of everything. They had, you know, modern schools, a gym facility. And, and in that post-war period, uh, post-World War II era, there was a real effort to try to make these mining communities, you know, not like the mining camps of the 19th century, right? Make them really wonderful places to live. And people have really fond memories of Pine Point. You can actually go to the National Film Board site and there's this multimedia project by these two guys, the Shoe Bridges, uh, they're called the Goggles. And uh, they wrote a, well, uh, did a multimedia project called Welcome to Pine Point. And it's a really wonderful reflection on people's positive memories of living in a mining community. So I think like anything in history, the experience of miners is complicated. And, and we hope that we've sort of tried to reflect that in the book as we talk about a lot of these sort of contradictory experiences that people had. Is there a boom bust sort of cycle associated with somewhere like Pine Point that I tend to associate with it? With mining or oil and gas as well, you, you sort of see moments of, of great boom. And then if there's a collapse or a decline in the market or, or something goes wrong with the extraction, then the community gets decimated. Is Pine Point, would it fit within a pattern like that? Yes. Pine Point lasted about 25 years, which is, I guess, I guess the mining industry might say that's pretty good because some mines only last for five years. But in the broad sweep of time, of course, that's a very, very short amount of time for a human community to, to last, right? It's, it's, it sort of bespeaks the hit and run nature of, of the industry. And there can be any number, if you're asking why a mine collapses, I mean, there can be any number of reasons for that. Like you say, mar- the changes in market conditions, a sudden, a sudden drop in the price for a commodity can lead to a bust period. It's very rarely, uh, you know, that a lot of people might think, Oh, mines collapse when the when the ore runs out, and that's very rarely the case. And often, what you see is when there's a boom cycle comes in. Sometimes mining companies look at old mine sites and they want to go back in there and mine some more because the price is good now. So let's go back and see what what ore wasn't picked up when you know 30 or 40 years ago when this was a mine. So, but I think I think one of the biggest struggles of being in that workforce is that it is boom and bust. We haven't had a new mining community in Canada since the 1980s. The industry has moved to fly in and fly out. So you sort of have, I guess, that old esprit de corps of the, of the old days is gone now. And boom bust means instability in another number of ways. You're separated from your family as you do the fly in, fly out shifts, whether it's two weeks at a time or a month at a time. And of course, whether you're going to get called out to the next shift really depends on market conditions and uh, and the condition of the development itself. And so it's not jobs for life. Let's put it that way. Um, there are there are mines with a certain amount of longevity, and I mentioned the Labrador iron mines, which have been around for 50, well, probably 60, almost 70 years now in some cases, and are projected to go for another 50, 60 years. So. In that sense, though they do experience booms and busts according to price, you know, at least the mines do have kept open and have kept running, although some of them like Shefferville have collapsed the mines around Shefferville. So it's it's a complicated story, but um, 
definitely uh, more than anything else, we talk about, you know, Northrop Fry, the great literary critic saying that Canada as a, as a, as a country that relies a great deal on non-renewable resources is, is a country also littered with ghost towns. And we talk about ghost towns and we talk about zombie minds also in the book, which is basically our, our definition of that as a, a mind that exerts some sort of malevolent influence after it's been abandoned. Or maybe it's a mind that people want to revive again because mineral prices have gone up. But um, there's never necessarily a clear cut end to the history of the mind, of, of an individual mind. But there are so many cases where workers have been displaced because production stops. How do you come to terms with that, with the abandoned mines and, and the people who have a romantic vision of it? You mentioned the people who talked about Pine Point being a great place to live. And yet mines close. There, there are places all across the country, which is well profiled in the book, where the mine is no longer active. You have ghost communities, as you mentioned. And in certain cases, the mines being abandoned have led to a certain level of environmental degradation and and there's a challenge now to cap any sort of damage that's being done by the mind so when you talk about say the oral history of a place like pine point when when these people talk about how much they enjoyed living there and how it was a, a wonderful community how do they try to reconcile the legacy of the of a mine that has been abandoned and, and the potential damage that is done once the mine is abandoned if it has not been properly accounted for by the company on the way out. I think there's there's a matter of factness about it in, in terms of the people that we've talked to. The people acknowledge that there was a mess left behind at, at Pine Point. At least Pine Point doesn't have the kind of the same kind of toxic liabilities as a place like Giant Mine, where there's 237,000 tons of arsenic buried under the ground and it's spread all over the surface. You know, and the site is right adjacent to Northwest Territory's largest city, Yellowknife, and it, you know, it, it it's a it's a clear and present danger to the people living there um, if that material were to ever uh, get into the water table. Um, and I think, I, again, having talked to many people in Yellowknife, there are divided opinions. There are lots of people who are proud of the mining legacy of of Yellowknife and the mining heritage, and I, I can totally understand that if you. If you have uh, relatives that worked in the mines and so on, and, and one of the arguments that comes up a lot is that Yellowknife wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for gold mining. And, and so our community wouldn't exist. And that is true. Uh, it wouldn't exist in the same way that it, it exists today. But I think people in the city have also come to realize, given you know the amount of press that has been accorded that particular case, that the good stories have to also be mixed within an acknowledgement of some of the bad stories. And, uh, you know, it used to be that the settler community in Yellowknife more often than not would, would not believe indigenous people when they said, Hey, we were, we were poisoned by arsenic coming from the mine. We lost at least one child, maybe more children. Um, The records are a little bit unclear on that, but now you know, broadly in the community, that is acknowledged as, as factual. And, and I think that there's an understanding that um, the remediation of the mine also has to go hand in hand with some form of reconciliation effort direct, directed towards the Yellowknife's Dene First Nation in, in that area. You know, I, I, I think as with everything, when you confront histories that you maybe want to be celebratory because you are part of it or you have a a family legacy associated with that particular history 
at times history comes back and asks you to reconsider. If, you, if you're really willing to look at it critically, it asks you to reconsider your position in relation to that history. And in terms of binding, I think uh, what this book asks people to do is, yes, understand that, that um, there were important, important achievements attached to this industry, but let's acknowledge the other side too. And that is the environmental damage um, that comes with these mines. And I guess, you know, as historians, we try to tell the complete story, the whole story, and not leave significant aspects of it out. And, and that's what we tried to do in this book is, is try to see this industry from all different sides. So I wouldn't say it's an environmentalist book, uh, although environmentalists might find it interesting. We will have succeeded, though, also, I think, if mining industry people find the book interesting. Is there, though, a difference in how people interpret the legacy of a mine, depending on what the material that was mined there was? Like, do people have a better sense or a better feeling towards, say, gold mines than they do uh, to coal mines that, that have been abandoned? Like, is there, like, the popular imagination or the contemporary understanding of certain items that are extracted from the ground, of, of now we think of some things as being good, and, and of value and other things we think, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't do that or we're trying to phase out the use of it with with the example of coal. Does that change the way people look back at certain sites and the legacy of mines? Like, is there a contemporary influence on the history of these sites? Well, I, I think you're asking is uh, what you're asking is how much does the material that's being mined shape the history of, of the mines themselves? And I think you're really onto something because this is something I, I think we also foreground in the book, but to take an extreme example, which we don't talk about in the book because there isn't a lot of it in Canada, but salt mining. I had the good fortune of visiting the salt mines, one of the salt mines near Berchtesgaden and between Berchtesgaden and Salzburg in, in Germany, right on the German Austrian border a number of years ago. And I mean, salt mining has to be one of the most benign forms of mining because basically because salt dissolves, what they and because it's usually geologically pretty unitary, you don't have to separate it out from a lot of other material, which is where a lot of the pollution problems come from in in uh, other types of mining. They basically just you know shoot water into the into the salt deposits, dissolve it, and then pipe it out out from underneath the mountains. And so the mine that we took a tour in, which is basically a heritage site, it was also an operating mine. Um, those two things were able to coexist. So. Yeah, I, th I think that's an example of where the geological structure and the nature of the material itself produces certain kind of mining. Gold mining, coal mining, they all have different issues associated with them because gold tends to be, you know, in, in Canada, it's been in that kind of pre-Cambrian rock, that ancient rock of the Canadian shield, and it's in there in very small percentages. So when you mine that ore and you start to break it up and crush it and you put it through a flotation system and you have all the waste rock, right? Like 98, 99% of the ore that that gold was embedded in becomes waste. You've got all kinds of potential pollution problems, right? You've got heavy metals. You've got a phenomenon called acid mine drainage. I won't get into the technical side of it, but you, you have chemical rea chemical reactions can occur in the waste pile and the, and the end product is hydrochloric acid. And that acid can in turn leach more heavy metals, which are toxic to fish, toxic to wildlife, and ultimately toxic 
to humans. So that's that's coal mining. Coal mining, um, you know, again, I've talked about how dangerous coal mines are. That's because of the mineral itself and the fact that it tends to off gas. And then the geological structure of those mines is such that they you can sometimes get bumps in the mines and the the, the infamous Spring Hill disasters. Uh, there were multiple ones, but uh, you know, 1956, 1958, um, there was a there was a bump. Uh, and it's basically a minor seismic event, but it has devastating consequences for anybody working in the mine. Chambers collapse, people get trapped, people get crushed. There can be, uh, you know, without proper emergency ventilation systems, people can lose the ability to breathe and be as, asphyxiated and so on. So yes, you're you're right. The the actual material itself is. It, it shapes how that mine is going to, the, the history that's going to take place, whether it's a polluting mine, whether it's a dangerous mine and so on. Pine Point, as I mentioned, um, because it's mostly in a limestone formation, there weren't really the same problems with acid mine drainage. There weren't a lot of heavy metals or pollutants that came out of that mine. There were some, but not, not as bad compared to other mines. The issue there is landscape change. Because to get at the mines, or to get at the ore, the most economically feasible way was to d dig these largish pits, 46 of them. And then you've got to have road networks everywhere. So the impact there is extensive over a fairly broad landscape. Um, and again, Indigenous people talk about how that activity, the seismic lines, the roads, the pits, it compromised their ability to um, to trap and hunt in that area, and in fact, of course, while the mine was operating, they were they were not allowed on the property. Yeah, and it really th this all speaks to the benefit of the approach you guys have taken with the book is is having these case studies within the large themes that you identify to place this within a national narrative. And and I said to you before we started to record that I was pleasantly surprised when I went through the book that it had all these levels to it, that it did have this nuance, and it wasn't the kind of traditional what I had in my head of a very boosterish romantic vision of mining that, uh, you know, as you've made reference to it, it, it kind of honors the work of those who were involved, particularly those who were in the mines themselves, while also having this larger critical and not necessarily in a negative way, like a critical look at the industry in general. So, so I very much enjoyed it uh, uh, when I went through it. So John, if people want to get the book, uh, where can they do it? You mentioned Lorimer publishing the, this book. Uh, how can they get more info on it? And if they want to pick up a copy, what's the best way to do it? The best way would be uh, if you want to buy it directly from the publisher, you can you can Google um, uh, mining country Lorimer um, and you'll you'll get their website. But it is available at major bookstores, at, at chapters. Um, it's available through Amazon, all the all the places you would expect to find a book. So uh, yeah, we hope people will engage with it and read it. And the other thing I would say about it that we need to thank the publisher and acknowledge that they took the very rare step at, at pretty much insisting that this book be illustrated with over 150 photographs. So not only is this a, a written history, but uh, it's a history that's told through images. And, and so in a sense, it takes you to the places that we're talking about. You get to see what these mines looked like, both at the surface and underground. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and I did find that very beneficial going through it. Uh, the, the image is added a lot to it. A lot frequently in history books, especially when they like st 
stuff all the images right in the middle there uh they don't add a lot but th this one it, it was very important and useful to have those images so i, I definitely appreciated that so uh john sandlas the co-author with arn keeling mining country a history of canada's mines and miners thank you so much for joining me today this was great thanks for having me sean so there you have it my conversation with John Sanlos, and I thank him for his time. Again, the book is Mining Country, A History of Canada's Mines and Miners from our friends over at Lorimer Press. And certainly thanks to Liz for helping to set this one up for us. So that will do it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcast. Do likes, ratings, comments, all that good stuff. Helps other people find the show and keeps us growing. Do head on over to activehistory.ca. You can find all of our past episodes under the podcast tab, as well as all the other great work going on over at the site. And I will also recommend to you a post from the CHA about military history and the challenges and benefits of teaching military history. All, all of my military history friends, uh, including uh, the great Sarah Karn, uh, Carolyn Damour, were very excited uh, on social media. And, and, and I found the article through their tweets, so uh, and I, I very much enjoyed it as well. So do uh, check that out if you are interested. Thanks for listening, everybody. I always appreciate it. If you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, do feel free to get in touch. HistorySlam at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. So until we talk to you again next week, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.